0: Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that our hearts, our minds would be enlightened this morning. And that just for these few moments, we would glimpse far beyond our experience. That we would see the magnitude of what Your Son has done. And that we would be changed that our faith would be strengthened. Amen. There are many little symbols that we do, and this is really for people from Cambridge. And I'm not going to take the time right now to explain every single one of them. They're all loaded with meaning. But I do want to mention that last one you saw. We process the Gospel into the middle of the congregation when we read it. And we do so as a symbol that Jesus Christ came into our midst. He did not stay distant from us. It's a particularly pertinent symbol at this time of year. Jesus Christ has come close. Verse 27 of Luke 21. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We are stepping into deep theological waters today in a very limited amount of time. If in stepping in these waters I step on your toes and tell you something that is different than what you've heard in the past, don't be offended. You can talk to me later. I'm actually going to offer you an understanding and an interpretation of this passage that is in contest amongst theologians. And I'm convinced this is the right one, but I have to acknowledge that others might disagree. And Christians are allowed to argue in good faith with one another. So like I said, if in stepping into these waters, I step on your toes, don't worry. Jesus said this sort of statement you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great glory. He said this statement a number of times throughout his ministry. This isn't an exhausted list, but just listen to a few of them. This is from Matthew 10, verse 23. He said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. He's sending his disciples out here. He said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He spoke frequently of the Son of Man coming. A few chapters later, in chapter 16, verses 27 and 28, He said, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Of course, we just heard in Luke 21, 27, and 28 him say the same thing and make a similar claim at the end. This is verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And then even just a chapter later in Luke 22, when He's standing before the high priest He says to the high priest, after the high priest said to him, if you were the Christ, tell us. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It helps if I read the right verse. Let me find the verse that I actually wanted to read. I think I was actually going to read Matthew's version of it. Excuse me. For those of you who don't normally come to church here, this never happens. <laughs> wow. This is what happens. Cambridge, um, my whole family got COVID a couple of weeks ago and we've spent the last couple of weeks in hibernation. And evidently my mind has gone into hibernation too. (laughs) Listen to Matthew's rendition of the same thing because Matthew tells us more fully what Jesus said to the high priest. The high priest challenged him and he actually said to him, are you the Christ? And he said, I will not tell you. But then when he actually spoke to him, he said, and I thought, he said, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power And coming on the clouds of heaven, that was the point that I wanted to get, that he said to him, you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. He said this a number of times, and this isn't an exhaustive list, and I'm not going to go to the other times because I would probably miss them and land on the wrong verse. But a number of times he said to people, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. We hear this phrase, and this is where I might begin to step on toes. We hear this phrase, coming in a cloud, and we assume that it refers to when Jesus comes again. That's our assumption. He's talking about the second coming. We make that assumption because the angels at his ascension looked at the disciples after he ascended in a cloud, looked at them and said, the way that you saw him go, he will come again, i.e., in a cloud through the sky. We also make that assumption because in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says to the Thessalonians who are worried about the people who had died, and he's describing that they don't need to worry because they will be resurrected in the Lord. And as he begins to describe the return of the Lord, he says that we will be caught up together with him in the air. We have good reason for making the assumption because there's multiple places where we hear that Jesus will return the way he left or that we will go up in the air to meet him. We assume, therefore, that whenever he says you will see the son of man coming in a cloud, that he's speaking of his return. There's two problems with this, though. Two problems with this assumption. You might have actually caught them in the passages that I read. Almost every time Jesus uses this phrase, you will see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, he claims it will happen in the lifetime of his disciples. This is difficult. Matthew 10, he's sending them out to evangelize, and he said, you won't even finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Matthew 16, he says, some of you standing here won't taste death until the Son of Man comes. The passage we read today, Luke 21, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Looking at the high priest You will see this. Over and over, he says to them, this will happen in your lifetime. If these passages refer to the return of Jesus, why did he claim that it would happen in the lifetime of his audience? Secular Bible scholars look at this and just simply say Jesus was wrong. The early church was wrong. They didn't know. But we, of course, can't accept that answer. We've staked all of our hopes, our very lives, on the trustworthiness of Jesus. And so the only logical conclusion is that we must be misunderstanding what he's saying. So people have offered arguments. When he says this generation will not pass away, they say this generation must refer to Israel. Israel won't pass away before it occurs. Or this generation refers to his disciples. There will always be disciples of Jesus. And those disciples will still be here when this occurs. Or even this generation refers to his enemies. He will always have enemies until he uh, returns. But this is where I step on toes. Those arguments always feel like a way of trying to escape the simple thing that Jesus says repeatedly. This will happen in your lifetime. You will see it. You will see it. The other problem that we run into, not just the problem that Jesus always seems to be claiming that this will happen in the lifetime of his followers. The other problem that we run into is Daniel 7. You see, if these passages are referring to the second coming, we need to ask ourselves why Jesus keeps quoting Daniel 7. You'll heard Daniel 7 last week, but let me remind you of the relevant verses the ones that he's quoting and he's referring to every single time, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. And Daniel 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7 isn't a description of the Son of Man coming to earth. Let me say that again. Daniel 7 isn't a description of the Son of Man coming to earth. It's a description of the Son of Man going into the throne room of the Father. It's a description of the Son of Man coming with the clouds into the presence of the Father. And so if Jesus is talking about his return every time he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in power, coming on a cloud, why does he keep using the quotation from Daniel 7 to say it? Is he changing the meaning of Daniel 7? I would say to you all that Daniel 7 isn't actually a problem. I think Daniel 7 is actually a key for us to begin to understand what Jesus means. It will help us understand him. When we understand what he means, when he says the Son of Man will come on a cloud in power and with glory, the first problem, I believe, will also disappear. Why does he say over and over that it will happen in the lifetime of his disciples? Daniel 7 shows us what he means, and he shows us that it means something other than the second coming. Now, before I go further and begin to talk about what Daniel 7 actually means and therefore what all of Jesus' statements mean and how this resolves the problem of how did it happen in this generation, let me state up front, Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again in power and glory. And Jesus will come again, as the angel said, in the same way that he left. Everything that I'm saying today does not undercut the fact that the Bible is crystal clear on that point. My point is simply that these passages might not be referring to what we think that they're referring to. The fact that he will come again is not primarily, in other words, what he meant every time he said, you will see the son of man coming on a cloud with power and glory. Like I said, as I step into these deep waters, I might step on your toes, but that's okay. We can disagree, or maybe you can persuade me later. In order to see, though, what we mean, we need to think about what Daniel's describing. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is describing the son of man coming into the throne room of the Father where He is vindicated and glorified. He's describing the Son of Man marching into the throne room, riding the clouds into the throne room where He's enthroned as High King and He's given an everlasting kingdom. He's seeing the Son of Man coming in and being given authority over all nations, authority to judge. This is what Daniel 7 is seeing. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. In other words, all of those passages don't refer to his second coming. Those passages refer to him entering the throne room of the Father and being given authority over the entire earth. This is what he meant in Luke 21, the passage that we're looking at today, that they would see the Son of Man enter the throne room of the Father and be given authority over all be vindicated, be glorified. This, by the way, begins to make what make it make sense when Jesus looked at the high priest and said to him, I will not tell you whether I am the Christ, but I will tell you that you will see the Son of Man entering on the clouds. Because what he was saying to the high priest is you will see me. You will see me in the throne room. You will see the ancient of days clothe me with all authority over all. You will see me anointed as judge and king. You will see me vindicated. That's what he was saying to the high priest, not I'll come again. He was saying, you will see me given all the power over all the nations. And the high priest heard it and tore his robes and said, blasphemy. It was his final proof that Jesus deserved to die. Can you imagine the audacity of looking at the high priest and saying, you will see me sitting in the heavenly realm being given the kingdom that's over all kingdom, authority over all the earth, and you will see me vindicated and anointed as judge over you. And the high priest said, you blasphemy. It was the final proof what he was claiming that he deserved death. The two questions that arise, and like I said, we're stepping into deep waters, and this is too fast It's one of those times where I wish that we could spend four or five weeks on a particular passage. But if this can set the stage for you wrestling with this idea, that's good enough, I suppose. The two questions that arise if Jesus said to his disciples, even to the high priest, you will see me coming on the clouds, And if that quotation from Daniel 7 means you will see me enter the throne room of the Father and be vindicated, you will see me enter the throne room of the Father and be given power and glory over all the nations, you will see me be given all authority, be crowned as high king, the two questions, the related questions that arise are when did that actually occur and how in the world did those people see it? He's describing something happening in the heavenly realm and he says this will occur in your lifetime and you will see it. So when did it occur? In order to answer that question, it's important to realize that biblical prophecy oftentimes unfolds over multiple stages at deeper and deeper levels. There's rarely just one end to a prophecy. Usually the first fulfillment is the lesser, and it grows and swells, and there's layers and levels and stages of development and fulfillment that proves the prophecy right. In other words, even in Jesus' prophetic claim, you will see me on the crowds of heaven, we should expect to see multiple times when this is fulfilled. Hold in your mind the fact that what Daniel 7 is talking about is the Son of Man being vindicated before all. Hold in your mind the fact that Daniel 7 is talking about the Son of Man being given authority over all. That's really what the prophecy points to. I will be vindicated and I will be given all authority. The first stage, the first fulfillment of this is referred to all over the Gospel of John. And this is really just a foretaste of the fulfillment. But throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus actually says that the Son of Man will be lifted up. Do you hear that language of going up to the heavens? The Son of Man will be lifted up. And he says the Son of Man will be glorified in his lifting up. But the weirdness of this early first stage of the fulfillment is that we find in the Gospel of John that his lifting up is a lifting up on the cross. Throughout the Gospel, he says, I will be glorified and lifted up. But it's a lifting up in the way that we can't imagine is glorification. And we could say this is just a foretaste of the fulfillment, the Son of Man being elevated, being glorified, being vindicated. Only those with eyes to see your true faith would ever recognize that is the Son of Man being glorified. Yet there were a few who did, and that was the way that Jesus spoke of it, his elevation, his glorification. Even a Roman centurion at the cross, this is Mark 15, when he saw Jesus crucified, responded by saying, surely this was the Son of God. Vindication was offered there. The second stage is perhaps clear. The second stage of the beginning of his vindication, his entering into the throne room of the Father to be vindicated and given authority is in the resurrection. This is why Paul at the beginning of Romans can say that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection itself vindicated him. It's why after the resurrection, he's almost quoting Daniel 7 here. After the resurrection, he can look at the apostles in Matthew 28 and say, all authority has been given to me. That's Daniel 7 language. I've been given authority an everlasting dominion. And where does he send them? To all nations. That's Daniel 7 language, because all the nations are under my authority now. His resurrection was the next stage of this vindication, this glorification, this enthronement, this power over all. But again, only those with faith, with eyes to see, could actually see that Jesus was vindicated in the resurrection, possessed all power because of the resurrection, had an internal kingdom because of the resurrection. The third stage is the most explicit. He said to his apostles, you will see me going on the clouds of heaven. And when did they see it? At the ascension. At the ascension where he was literally lifted up in a cloud into the throne room of the Father and he was vindicated in the sight of all. As Philippians 2 says, at that moment God highly exalted him. He bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hebrews 1 says, referring to the ascension, that he sat down beside the Father, superior to every created being. Literally at the ascension, he rode the cloud into the throne room of heaven where he was vindicated and glorified. But again, only those with faith Only those with eyes to see recognized it as such. There's a fourth stage, though. A fourth stage that's absolutely obscure to us. A fourth stage that occurred in 70 A.D. And if right then you go, 70 A.D.? That's outside of the lifetime of Jesus, right? You're right. In 70 A.D., Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. This likely comes to you out of the blue. What does the Roman army destroying the temple have to do with Jesus being enthroned? What does a Roman army destroying the temple have to do with Jesus being vindicated, being declared the rightful judge and the rightful king? It's actually Jesus who linked these two things. Jesus linked them explicitly. In fact, the passage that we're in today is one of those places that we link it. This is why I wish we had weeks on this passage. Because Luke 21 is a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. They were leaving Jerusalem. This is recorded, by the way, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was really important to the early church, and it's one of those bits of the Gospels that we just kind of forget. They're leaving Jerusalem, and one of the disciples says, look how beautiful the temple is. They're admiring it. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, a time is coming when not a single stone will be left standing on top of one another. The entire thing is coming down. He prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. They say, when will this happen? What will the signs be? And he begins to explain to them what the signs will be. And by the way, when we read those passages, we usually think that they're talking about the end of the world, Jesus returning. But if you go to the beginning of them, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13, the three chapters that record this, and all of them, They're an explicit answer to the disciples' question. Tell us when the temple will be destroyed. When was the temple destroyed? 70 A.D. It's in those descriptions of the temple being destroyed that Jesus embeds his statement, you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. Why did he say it in the midst of a description of the temple being destroyed? The basic, very quick answer is this is that throughout the Gospel of John and in other places, he said God's temple was the place where he met with man. But that will be destroyed, and it will be replaced with my own body. He said this in various ways, hinting at it at times, saying it almost explicitly in other times. The temple, God's meeting with man, that will be taken down, and my body will be the replacement. He said this enough that this prophecy that the temple would be destroyed clung to him because saying the temple would be destroyed wasn't just sacrilegious. It was unpatriotic, and people hated him for saying it. Jeremiah, by the way, said the same thing before it was destroyed by the Babylonians, and he was attempts were made on his life because of it. Jesus said it repeatedly, In the prophecy, the statement clung to him, and it came back and was flung in his face at the trial. This is the one who said the temple would be destroyed. It was flung in his face on the cross. He was the one who said he could actually rebuild the temple. People hung on to that statement. Even Stephen, the deacon who was stoned, even it was brought up at his trial. You're the one who believed the person who said the temple would be destroyed. This prophecy got under people's skin. But Jesus was explicit. God's meeting place with man is coming down and will be replaced with my own body. In other words, when the temple was destroyed, Jesus was vindicated. When the temple came down, his statement of I am now the meeting place between God and man was proven to be correct. Daniel 7, he was vindicated. They saw him enthroned because suddenly they realized that he had been right all along. Anybody could see this one because of foreign armies marching through, ripping every stone apart from one another, dropping the whole city to the ground. He clearly was right. His authority was true. He was vindicated. Even those without faith, like the high priest, could see this one. I doubt he received it, but anybody could see it. This is why this passage ends up embedded in this prophecy about the temple being destroyed. At this point you may be going, where in the world is he going? I kind of wonder the same thing. No. Jesus' claim you will see the Son of Man returning. See you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. His claim this prophecy continues to reverberate. I talked about four stages. On his cross, he is lifted up. In his resurrection, he's proven to be the Son of God. In his ascension, he's crowned in the throne room of heaven. In the destruction of the temple, his words, his prophecies are vindicated, and we see that he is actually the meeting place between God and man. But there is actually a final stage yet to come. Even though these statements don't properly apply to Jesus actually returning in power and glory, they refer to him going into the throne room of the Father. We cannot let go of the fact that the angel said, in the way that you saw him go, he will come again. It's a different movement in this levels and levels and stages and stages of the prophecy coming true. It's a movement with a change because instead of him going, he's coming in this movement. Instead of coming into the throne room of the Father, he's coming back to us. But the other parts of it are the same and reverberate. Because when he comes, he will be vindicated as the rightful son of man. The authority that he has over all nations will actually be seen. The angels declared at the ascension that he would return in the same way, and he was vindicated in his cross, vindicated in his resurrection, vindicated in his ascension, vindicated when the temple came down, and he will be vindicated when he returns. He will yet again be vindicated. Like I said before in Philippians 2, Paul says, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will be vindicated when he returns in glory. In other words, there is a fifth stage of this prophecy yet to come, one that comes long after the lifetime of the disciples. You notice all those other ones occurred in their lifetime. Jesus was not wrong when he said, you will see the Son of Man in glory in your lifetime. Yet this stage occurs long after long after. This time he will not come into the throne room. He will not go to the throne room to receive his kingdom. He has already done that. He will come from the throne room to exercise his kingdom with all authority over the world. He will come in the way that he left. This fifth stage is the one that we long for, that we hope for. It's what Advent is all about. We remember the first coming in Advent, But the first coming is supposed to jog us, to remind us, to spur us to hope for the second coming. It's this fifth stage of Jesus' vindicated, exercising authority that we long for. Throughout this week, as I thought about this passage, I kept thinking about how tiny our perspective is. We see the world through our own lives. It makes sense. We see the world through our own history, through our own story. The way we think and feel dominates how we see and what we interpret of the world. Our thoughts and feelings consume us. Our noses are down, eyes focused on our life. The day that we've been given, the work we have to do, we're preoccupied with joys, with cares, with struggles, with the frustrations. Of course, our lives, they're incredibly important. But our perspective is so small. As I thought about this passage this week, the thing that I hoped is that we would see what Jesus was trying to show His disciples. Why did He say to them over and over, you will see the Son of Man in power and glory? From the perspective of their life, they were under the thumb of the Romans and they were an outcast sect in Judaism. Their lives were hard. And yet He was opening their eyes to say, you will see the Son of Man in power and glory. You will see me vindicate a king over all the world. My hope, my hope for myself, my hope for you is that we would actually see bigger eyes because a king has been crowned. The Lord Jesus, he is standing at the right hand of the Father with authority over all nations. Everything that happens in our nation is under his control. Everything that happens across the world is under his control. Your lives are under his control. He has been crowned and vindicated. He has been given glory over all. Every bit of the earth is under his authority. What has happened in the heavens is so significant that whenever the prophets speak of it, they revert to language like the sun stopping or the moon turning to blood or the earth breaking in half. They can't speak of it without saying it's like the whole world falling apart and being remade because a king has been crowned. He humbled himself for our sake. And so God exalted him and has crowned him king. When the Lord Jesus lifts his hand, nations fall. Again, our perspective is so small. We think that this, what I'm in, is forever. But when the Lord speak, kingdoms totter. His authority is absolute. My hope for us is simply that our eyes would be opened and that we would see that our lives are part of a much grander story than we realize and that what the Lord is doing is bigger than we know. He is closer to this world and to us than we realize. He is over all. He actually has authority over all. Our lives are fitted into what He is doing. They are secure in Him. And the part that we long for, the part that Advent teaches us to hope for, is that He will actually return. This King who has been crowned will return to exercise His authority. He will return to judge the world and to destroy evil. And in that moment, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. The high priest who rejected Him in His lifetime every person in our lifetime who says, I will live my life my own way, we will bow before the king because he has been given all authority. As we move through Advent, we seek to prepare to celebrate the first coming. But the hope is that we would remember that our hope lies in the second coming when the king returns with authority to judge, to rule, and to heal. Amen.